Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. You'll find here toward the end of Paul's epistles, 1 Thessalonians, sorry, 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Savannah, and Timothy are addressing the church in Thessalonica, in Greece, and he is addressing them because they are a persecuted people, and he wishes to write to them to encourage them to build up their endurance and their patience under their persecution. So here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to read verses 3 through 12. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, you're now the word of the Lord. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly in the love of every one of you, all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest. With us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction. From the presence of the Lord and from the power of, from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe. Because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we also pray always for you. That our God would count you worthy of this calling. And fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. When we suffer, we are sometimes rightly moved to pray. Or to ask others to pray for us. But how often do we pray or ask others to pray for us in our suffering? What is the number one prayer request? Father, make it end. Father, get me out. And yet it is striking in this letter to the Thessalonians that Paul spends two-thirds of our paragraph saying of them, I thank God that you are worthy of this suffering. That you are a faithful, enduring, and patient people, deserving of this hour of trial in which you are excelling. That one-third, that very end of the paragraph, just verses 11 and 12, contain Paul's prayer request for them. In which he says, and the one thing I ask God to give you is that you would keep it up. And that you would glorify God in it. At no point does Paul express any desire to have them relieved of the suffering. Rather, he says, I would have God glorified by you in the suffering. 
this change of heart, this change of focus rests on what is the pivotal center third of this section. That he looks with hope to the coming of Christ. And to the great reversal of all that has gone on. What Paul dreams of in Romans chapter 8. What Tolkien celebrated as the great you catastrophe. The great good catastrophe. Is indeed where the hope of our hearts should rest today. The suffering of this life Paul proclaims is not worth comparing to that first brief glimpse of Jesus Christ in glory. One blink of the eyelid from Christ is worth all the tears and sorrows we shed in this life. With this in mind, turn back to Psalm 52. It's the first Lord's Day of the month. We're going to look at our Psalm of the month, which is Psalm 52. This Psalm, not surprisingly comes after Psalm 51. This is important not only because it shows I can do a little bit of math. It is far more important because Psalm 51 was David's very deep and personal meditation on his own sin, confronted by Nathan with Bathsheba. And that confrontation produced that psalm of confession, Psalm 51. In like manner, we are now entering into this season of Psalms, 51, 52, 53, and so on, in which David will bring forth out of the depth of his sorrows, out of the depth of sin, these incredible contemplations. So notice with me this morning, Psalm 52. Hear again the word of the Lord. To the, to the chief musician... A contemplation of David, when Doeg the Edomite went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devises destruction, like a sharp razor, working deceitfully. You love evil more than good. Lying rather than speaking righteousness. Selah. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place. And uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. The righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him saying, here is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise you forever because you have done it. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name, for it is good. Amen and amen. Anger is a volatile and violent emotion. Have you guys felt the heat in your heart when your anger and your wrath arises? We have numerous ways of expressing it as people. 
The anger will bubble and boil within us, creating a steam within our throat till at last exploding out is a torrent of harsh and hurtful words. Or the anger will shake and churn and grind within us until at last it moves our arms and with closed fists we strike. Sometimes, under the veneer of self-control, we allow the anger to fester and to boil and to burn within. And on the surface is the placid and calm and sanctified veneer of a Christian. No harsh words, no swinging fists. But far beneath is the volcanic rage of stoking bitterness and furious rage and anger. This is sometimes what we find within our hearts, within the hearts of one another. What do we do with it? I remember being a little boy and overcome with anger, closing tight my fists and striking my brother with all the hatred in my heart. In the aftermath, with grief, with guilt, I remember my mom showing me Psalm 4. Be angry, but do not sin. Speak within your heart. The antidote to this rage that is within is not a torrent of words, not a flying of fists, and certainly not a capping of the emotion. Rather, it is prayer. Anger is rightly directed to God in prayer. Prayer is the instrument and tool that trains us and teaches us to manage our emotions to deal with the wrongs of this life, perceived or real. And Psalm 52, along with all of its successors, is presented to us as a contemplation. You may notice in Psalm 52, 53, 54, and 55, David has strung together these psalms in sequence as a contemplation, a masquil. These are reflections that David has put together upon the sufferings he has endured. Upon the betrayals and harms that others have heaped upon him. David, you may recall, spent years on the run, suffering from many sins. And one of which was this sin of Doeg the Edomite. The story, if you followed the worship guide this last week, is given to us in 1 Samuel. In which David went and hid from Saul in the house of Ahimelech. Where he received... From that high priest, Ahimelech was the high priest, he received from him the sacred bread that only a priest could eat. As well as the sword of Goliath, which had been stored there as a souvenir of God's salvation for the people of God. Ahimelech, in entrusting the sacred bread and this symbol of authority of Goliath's sword to David, was clearly siding with David in the rivalry against Saul. It was Ahimelech acting in faith and trusting the word of David that he was on a mission from the king. And as Ahimelech was then laid bare by Doeg, who evidently present, told Saul the truth. Saul had Doeg arise and slaughter all the house of Ahimelech. It is in that tragedy that David begins to sing. When he looks upon the tsunami of injustice washing over him, 
when he feels the gripping bitterness of Doeg's betrayal, it is when David sees an entire house of a high priest of Israel murderously struck down by the evil of this Edomite that David begins to sing. Can you imagine this anger? Can you imagine the righteous indignation burning hot in David's heart? Doeg the Edomite betrayed his trust and surrendered the high priest and all his family but one to the sword of Saul. This betrayal would have hurt and it certainly was malicious and cruel. I know that we live in a dreadfully insulated life where unmet expectations usually consist of coming home to not having a hot dinner, to missing the green light. Yes, we are often excused from some of the deepest sufferings in this world, but it does not excuse us from learning the sanctifying lessons of Psalm 52. Because let me remind you, Psalm 52 was sung by David and then by Jesus. Because Jesus knows exactly what it's like to have a doeg in his household. Because once Jesus went up onto the hill on the night in which he was betrayed. And he found shelter and safety and silence in the garden of Gethsemane. And while he was there pouring out his soul to his heavenly father in prayer. His disciple Judas was gathering a mob to come and murder him. You see, Jesus sings Psalm 52 too. He knows these feelings. He knows these passions. He knows the rage of betrayal. He knows the anger of injustice. He knows the grief that we feel and experience when our expectations are not met, when our trust is mislaid, and when those who ought to love us and who are nearest and dearest to us strike us down. Yes, Doeg and Judas stand in the history of Scripture as a memorial of that all-too-typical experience, the saints betrayed by sinners. And my friends, you will not escape. You must learn this psalm. This is a psalm that you must sing. That you must learn to sing and learn it by heart. Because it is something that is going to equip us to deal with the anger that we rightly feel in a world drowning in injustice. When righteous indignation arises within us, what will we do? When we look into the news and into the media and we see what a mess this place has become. When we look into our homes and into our marriages and into the children and we think, what have I done? We need something that will lead us to prayer. And David leads us to prayer first by teaching us to remember the love of God. Look at verse 1. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. David here puts into comparison the evil of the mighty man and the goodness of God. In fact, this will become the refrain or exercise of this psalm. On the one hand, we have an evil man. There are three things we should know about him. First, he's mighty. He is strong. 
The sinners of this world are not weak in their sinning. In fact, if we are to elevate it spiritually a little bit, we can recognize that from the beginning, Satan is referred to as a creature who is more cunning than all the other creatures. Indeed, at the end of the scriptures in 1 Peter, we're told that he's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We see throughout the scriptures that there is one who Jesus calls the strong man. David calls him the mighty man. We have an enemy who is strong and who is mighty. We have a cunning foe who works craftily among us. We have sin that strives within us and easily overpowers us. Have you ever tried to keep a stopwatch on your temptations? Have you ever tried to estimate how long your resistance lasts when sin comes whispering in your ear? My friends, we are not as strong as we think we are. We have a mighty enemy who is great, secondly, in evil. These are wicked men and wicked deeds and wicked works that we are to do war with. But thirdly, he boasts in evil. This man of strength and of vigor... This mighty foe that David faces is arrogant in his evil. He is not only wicked, he's proud of it. And he boasts in it mightily. But David sets this image against the perpetual, endless, daily love of God. This word goodness in the New King James is translating a word that is far more rich and strong than good could ever be. It means covenant love. Steadfast love, relentless love, endless love, unbreakable love, unbeatable love. The highest, biggest, strongest love you have ever found. What David is here recognizing in verse 1 is what Joseph had learned so long ago. What you meant for evil, God has meant for good. What David is here confessing in verse 1 is that the strong and the evil of this world should not boast. For all their strength and all their sin is but an instrument to the good of God's people. Paul will pick up on this principle in Romans and say, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Jesus Himself will proclaim this about Judas when He says, the Son of Man goes to that end for which He was ordained. But woe to the one by whom he is betrayed. The sin that seems so strong in this life. The sinners who seem so insurmountable in this life. Are nevertheless part and parcel of God's goodness and love. There is a greater story at work than man's depravity. There is a greater play on the stage than the wickedness you observe. There is a love of God that is relentless and continual. How do we guide our hearts from all that rage and angst that is right when we see injustice and sin? To prayer. We first remember the love of God. We take a step back. And we remember God's love endures continually. His love is relentless and ever flowing. His love was not ignored or overcome in that dark day. 
His love, mysterious and veiled and confusing, was nevertheless the driving motive of his plans and purposes. God loves. And he loves on the darkest days. This is how we step into prayer. And it's out of that strength of seeing the love of God, even in the worst of situations, that David is then able to identify the evil that he has faced. Notice, this is not a cheap microwave Christianity. David does not skip over the sin. David does not pretend, okay, I've got the love of God all is well. David willingly invests in naming the evil. He recognizes the depravity that is in play. In verse 2, he speaks of the depravity as destructive. Your tongue devises destruction. He says in verse 4, you love all devouring words. In the beginning and end of this section, David notes that the sin and the injustice that has come is truly ruinous. It destroys, it devours, it consumes. But secondly, he notes that it is deceptive. In verse 2 again, you are working deceitfully. You love evil more than goodness, lying more than righteousness. You deceitful tongue. Not only is this depravity something that actually destroys life, Ahimelech's dead. Ahimelech's children are all dead. The high priest and the heirs to that office are dead. There is one priest left in the line of the high priest. He has fled to David for safety. One. There is true destruction and ruin. David confesses it. But there is also deceit. You see, Doag is a great warrior. Doag is an armed man in an age where weapons are rare. Doeg is probably David's colleague, a bodyguard of Saul. You see, in Doeg's mind, what he's doing is right. He's defending the royal king, Saul. He is reaching out against this rebel, David, and destroying all who help him. Do you not see the great deceptiveness of depravity? Do you not also live in an age where good is called evil and evil is called good? Do we not see around us the deceptiveness of our sin? That it easily lures us into thinking, this is the good thing? This is the right thing? This will make me feel better? Why do we boast in evil in all our strength? Why does this world celebrate this depravity? Because it is deceptive. It has whispered its cunning and crafty lies since the Garden of Eden, winning and wooing the hearts of humans to believe sin is good. This depravity that David recognizes and dares to name deceives Doeg into destroying the good to preserve the wicked. And so it is in our world, so it was in Christ's, that Jesus too, had a disciple who betrayed him in the most deceitful and despicable manner. You see, he not only gave away Jesus' secret sanctuary, he not only invaded that garden of Gethsemane like the serpent in Eden long ago, but when he came up, he cried, Rabbi, 
preserving the hypocrisy of his discipleship, as if he was somehow still under his authority, and then kissing him. In perhaps the most satanic act ever recorded in human history, he expressed love for the one he hated. He promised service to the one he was seeking to destroy. Such is the deceptivity and the depravity of our hearts. That we should out of good intentions wreck ruin on those we love. My friends, are we honest enough to admit what sin really is? Will we cease from playing our little games making acute diminutive names for that which destroys and deceives. This is how we begin. How do we pray ourselves through the wickedness and the injustice of this world? We see first the love of God. It strengthens us to call sin, sin. It is then in the context, when we see the love of God in all of its endlessness, that we have heart to admit who we really are. My friends, let me give you a gentle pastoral warning. If you go around confronting sin in yourself or in anyone else without first providing the safety net of the love of God, you will destroy your soul or theirs. This is what has happened far too often. We lay the law down with no bed of grace in which to fall. And we crush people. But it is also equally true, my friends, that if we have this soft bed of the love of God, then we must then admit we need to fall in it. We must then admit we are a wicked and ruined creation. And the depth of our depravity is far worse than we dare dream or admit. More deceitful than we could have ever thought. It is when we enter into this depth then, that we can begin to dream with David of the glorious resurrection and salvation that is offered to us. Notice in the third place that having remembered God's love and that from it found the strength to admit the depravity of humanity, David then in verse 5 remembers God's justice. For in Scripture, the love of God and the justice of God are not rivals, but best friends. In verse 5, God shall likewise destroy you forever. This destruction, David roots in a garden metaphor. An image that those of you who have some dirt under your fingernails can relate to. He says in verse 5, he will take you away. That is, he will gather up all the evil of the earth, dump them into his little cart, his little wheelbarrow, lift it up, and he'll push them out of his garden. But then David backs up the metaphor. Not only will he wheel the wickedness of this world away, he will pluck you from your dwelling. That is, he will actually go to each of the trees and each of the branches and he'll pull the sins and the wickedness off them and strip them bare and then lay them in. But then he backs up the metaphor a third time. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Not only will he remove this wickedness, he will remove the fruit of the wickedness. Not only will he do this, he will also remove the root of wickedness. By this mental image, David poetically portrays for us the thoroughness of God's salvation and his justice. 
He is an exacting God who will rid this world of all sin. He will destroy forever and remove all trace. He will not tolerate one square inch of his creation to be defiled or corrupted any longer. He will come with a great justice and make the world right. Just as David could hang on the memory and vision of God's love, the realization of his and humanity's depravity, so too David can rest on this, the justice of God, a hope for the future. You see, like Jesus, David is singing of what lies ahead. He is singing in the present of that which is yet to be obtained. This is an extraordinary comfort that God would graciously give us the privilege of singing and so singing for tasting the glory that is to come while we yet weep and sorrow. He gives us this song as the heaven that is to come. You see, when we sing verse 5, we are not singing of a world we can recognize. So David gives us the garden metaphor. We know what it's like to get Japanese knotweed out of our garden, some of us. I don't. I've seen others do it. I've seen a diligent, awesome wife do it. But you know what he says to us? That's what I'm doing. My justice is going out into the world. And just as you labor time and again to remove root and fruit of all those weeds you don't want... So God in Christ is working in this world his justice to remove the root and fruit of all wickedness. It is with this forward-looking imagination, with this hope that is to come, that David then settles into the hearts of the singer some joy. Having trained us to turn to the love of God in prayer... And on that prayer, to bring forth an honest confession of just how bad things really are, David then tells us to look upon the justice of God and to bring forth from it hope. Hope in the future of humanity. Notice that the love of God gives us that safety, that strength, to admit how bad we are as humans, but it is the justice of God that gives us the hope for what lies ahead. Verses 6 and 7. The righteous shall fear, see, and laugh. I love these verbs. I mean, these verbs just boggle the American mind. The righteous will see the justice of God. More often than not, We, so intoxicated with a tenderness of heart, want to avoid any semblance of true justice, forgetting that in the absence of justice, we have become oppressors ourselves. Instead, what David dreams of is the clear vision of the justice of God, something he can see and hold on to, something he can stretch out his eyes toward and say, there is the justice of God, and it will make them fear It will make them live in fear of the Holy One. It will make them respect God. It will make them thirdly rejoice. They will laugh at Him who did not make God His trust. Notice that the righteous are not laughing 
at their sorrows. Notice that the righteous are not laughing in the frivolous humor so common to us today. They are laughing in fear. They are laughing in reverence for God. And they are laughing in that scandalous joy that says you didn't trust God. You trusted riches and you trusted wickedness. You trusted the earthly powers of this world. And how much more do we see this then in the narrative of Christ in his life? For it was Judas who sided with the powers of his age. That great Sanhedrin in all its strength. Who enriched himself with 30 pieces of silver. And did not make Jesus his trust. And yet, according to the wisdom that David is here giving us, that ultimate act of evil which Judas performed for money, for wickedness, is something at which we now laugh. Because it was the justice of God for which we could now see and be saved. You see what David is singing about? He's singing about a cross. He's singing about a cross on which his Savior died. And all the justice of God was emptied upon that depraved humanity. The one who knew no sin became sin. That we might become the righteousness of God. David dreams in the spirit. As he looks upon Doeg and all his evil. As he experiences that all too common anger at injustice. And he is drawn by the spirit. Not to stew and fester in all of his personal problems, but to look up to the cross of Christ and to see there and to fear and to laugh and say, there's my salvation. There is my hope. My friends, what is it that keeps the heart light when the world gets heavy? Is it not Jesus Is it not the reality that in Jesus justice will surely come? That the cross of Christ makes right all this world's unrighteousness? And that though this world seeks to strengthen themselves in riches and wickedness, we ourselves see in their injustice the coming justice of God. It is when David has called us to remember the love of God to remember the justice of God, that we might recognize our own depravity and Christ's humanity, that he then turns and gives us verses 8 and 9, but I, but I am a green olive tree in the house of God. David's metaphor, once again from the garden, is that he is one not so easily torn down as Doeg had imagined. You see, Doeg thought that if he struck down the high priest Ahimelech and all his house, David would soon fall after. Doeg had thrown his lot in with the satanic Saul, that they together should bring an end to the Lord's anointed David. But David was trusting in the mercy of God, not in his own sword, as he swore to his servants who said, let us kill Saul when they found him sleeping in the night. And David said, nope, not my business. I will wait for God. 
He was entrusting himself to one who judges justly, as would be said of Jesus. I will praise you forever instead, says David. He enters into worship because you have done it. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on you, for it is good. David instead says, I will worship and I will wait. Because I know my roots are in what he calls in verse 8, the mercy of God. I don't like picking on Bible translations. Most of them do the best job they can do. And I'm thankful for them. But the new King James has done us a great disservice. By translating verse 1, the goodness of God. And verse 8, the mercy of God. Because in Hebrew, they're the exact same word on purpose. Indeed, it is the whole purpose of the psalm. He turns to the wicked man and he says... Why are you celebrating the destruction of the house of Ahimelech? Why are you siding with Saul? Do you not know the love of God is not so easily defeated? I am like an ever-growing tree whose roots sink deep into the love of God. Do you not know that if you swing that axe, all you will do is break your own arms? The tree will not come down. In this way, David is drawing this metaphor, not simply from the gardens we all know and love, but from the two gardens that bookend the Bible. There was the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, that picture of heavenly life and fellowship with God, which we see John see again in Revelation. And my friends... That ever-growing, ever-green olive tree from which the leaves are given for the healing of the nations is no other than Jesus Christ. He is the healer of nations. He is the fruitful tree, the true David. David sings out of the abundance of his grief and his sorrow and finds through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that his song has been caught up gloriously into the voice of Jesus Christ. And says, I will worship and I will wait. Because I know the everlasting love of God pours into me this new life. In the words of Jesus Christ in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. My friends, what do we do with all the anger and suffering of this life? We pray. But how? How do we get from this rage to that prayer? We turn to Christ. We follow Christ in prayer. We see in Him the love of God, the justice of God. And we learn to worship and wait. He is the fulfillment of this psalm. He is the forgiver of all sins. And my friends, this is the gospel truth this morning. Jesus died for sin. Because you see, ultimately, Psalm 52's glorious crescendo is not in verse 9. David, with his quiet expression of faith, says, I will worship and I will wait. And this is what we as the faithful, as the believing, must do today. We must take up our psalters and sing Psalm 52 and say, with all the sin and with all the suffering, I will worship and I will wait. But we must also, with David, see through the power of the Holy Spirit what it is we are waiting for. I should say, rather, 
Who? Who it is we are waiting for. Jesus has died for sin. My friends, sin no more. Be angry, but do not sin. Jesus has died for sin. So worship and wait. Sin no more in your anger. But when you see all the evil and the injustice within, without, and around, be angry, but do not sin. Jesus died for sin, so worship and wait. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful psalm. We thank you for the heavenly hope we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you that through the great evil of this world, the ultimate injustice, that the Lord of glory should be the servant of sinful men, that the unrighteous should die a sinner's death for that the righteous, sorry, that the righteous should die a sinner's death for the unrighteous. Oh God, that this great turn should work out for our salvation is too wonderful for words. Our Father, we give you thanks that truly we have so sweet a Savior and so great a salvation that we should not be so impatient. Give us quieted hearts this day that we would learn to worship and to wait upon you, knowing that you work all things for good. Oh God, lift up our eyes now to Christ and set our hearts on him, that in him we might live and move and have our being. We pray in his name. Amen.